Thank you. I hope you enjoyed lunch. Uh, before we open the microphone, I want to make a couple of points about the PowerPoint presentation and the images that uh, you're seeing. Um, I'm very aware that all of the images are of white women. I didn't intend that to be the case, but if, as I said earlier, it was very difficult finding images of women athletes uh, doing their sports. It was even more difficult trying to find uh, images of non-white women, uh, particularly the sexualized pictures. There were a few of uh, Serena Williams, um, almost no Asian uh, athletes, even in the golf sites. Uh, and so rather than just putting up a couple of token images, I think that this also does reflect um, how we judge uh, femininity and sexuality in North America uh, and that images of femininity are also very much tied to uh, skin color and race. Um, so, um, uh, and forget Aboriginal issues, uh, images. Uh, it was very difficult to find uh, images that, that fit this particular um, format that I wanted to present to you. The other thing that's important to remember is that most of these sexualized images have been photoshopped and airbrushed. Human beings just don't look like these women, right? And it isn't just the women athletes that we see. Every time you pick up a magazine, every time uh, you see an image, a lot of even images in the movies, photoshopping, um, airbrushing. A lot of these women where you're seeing the sexualized images, I know for a fact have tattoos and they're visible and they would certainly be visible in the bikinis that they're wearing. You can't see any tattoos in these images because they've all been airbrushed out or photoshopped out. So that's another problem that we have is that when uh, young girls, young boys, women, men, whatever, see these images and say, gee, I'd really love to look like that. Nobody looks like this. You know, even these women don't look like this, that they have been um, tucked in and pulled out and blown up and shrunk down and had their hair and makeup professionally done. And when they get out of bed in the morning, they don't look like that. So uh, those two points um, uh, I wanted to raise. And they do have further implications for discussion. So um, I'll get us started. Okay. Um, I'm Christina, and uh, I'm, we had a small discussion at our table. I'm wondering if similar issues are happening with male athletes. Good question. I'm not surprised that came up. We are seeing hypersexualization of, of young men, and a lot of them are athletes, uh, more than we did. But the difference is that we see all kinds of images of male athletes performing their sports. I mean, how many sports channels can you get? I mean, even if it's only on cable, or not even on cable, but just on, you know, CTV, Global, CBC, all day Saturday and Sunday we see images of male athletes playing their sports, not necessarily displaying their bodies in sexualized positions. So even though the bodies of young men are being challenged, got to have your six-pack or your eight-pack or... I guess a 12-pack will be next or a 2-4. I don't know what, what's going to come next. And it is problematic. Young boys have many more opportunities to see athletes of all different sizes and shapes and sports performing on almost a daily basis. On the covers of Sports Illustrated, um, we'd never see a male – we would always see male athletes engaged in their sport on the cover of Sports Illustrated. We'd never see a sexualized picture 
of a male athlete on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And yet the only time women are on the cover of Sports Illustrated is in sexualized ways. So yes, the sexualization of male athletes and boys in general is increasing, but it's it's going to be forever unbalanced with respect to the number of images that we can get of men actually doing their sports. Um, uh, and all sizes. I mean, you know, we've got the Super Bowl coming up. We're going to see 375-pound linemen getting paid millions of dollars. If a woman athlete looked like that, we wouldn't see pictures of her anywhere. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it about the differences between male bodies and female bodies that causes these differences to be as extreme as they are? Hi. Hi. Mary Shillington. Uh, in our table discussion, we there was some question raised about why the women uh, would choose to uh, be photographed in those kind of circumstances and wondered if it was tied together to their sponsors uh, in some way and or money. Uh, and we surmised probably that was the case. But it was interesting, uh, you know, there was an example of Nike, for instance. They, couldn't she have Nike shoes on, at least, and we could focus on the shoes? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, would you think of the male athletes, uh, uh, and so two questions. Uh, is, is that the case? Is it around money? And if that's the case, what can we as, as uh, spectators and, and people watching TV and looking at these magazines and so on, what can we do to let them know that we don't, don't want that kind of image of women portrayed? Thank you for raising that because it's something that I didn't have time to get into. But we are seeing um, the, the issue of sponsorship is a big one that if somebody's going to offer you lots and lots of money, which is going to allow you to continue to train in your sport, um, and you say, sure, but I won't take my clothes off, and they say, okay, thank you very much, we'll go find somebody else, you're, you may think twice about saying no, because participating in a number of sports is incredibly expensive. Um, the skiers right now are traveling all over the world. Somebody's got to pay for that. You know, the, the tennis players right now in the Australian Open, who's paying for them to fly across the world? I mean, there are appearance fees and things that they get, but it's very expensive to be a high-performance athlete. And if somebody offers you money and says, in order to get this money, you have to take your clothes off, I think in the rest of the world they call that prostitution. Uh, in sport, we just call it good publicity, and I think that we need to really look at that. There are other issues, though, that young women, and these are primarily young women that you see images of, are very proud of the bodies that they've developed through sport. And they say, why shouldn't we show them off? There's a real argument here, and we see numbers, increasing numbers of nude calendars of athletes being produced. There was one by the national rugby team a few years ago. Before the 2010 Olympics, the Canadian women biathlon team did a nude Olympic calendar, very tastefully done. But it was the only way they had to raise money because Sport Canada and other funding agencies are not giving them enough money to um, make it all the way. And those sports don't have sponsors. And they don't see a lot of TV money because they're not publicized on television. So oftentimes there's no other way to fund the sport. Our reaction to that, you see an ad that's offensive, you write to the company and say, you clean up your act or I'm not going to buy your product anymore. To the women, we let them know, you know, 
We want you to be proud of the body that you've developed as an athlete, and we want to see you doing your sport. We want to see that body performing in the way that you've trained your body to perform because those are the images that we want young girls and young boys to see that you can do amazing things if you work hard and you get off the couch and all that sort of stuff. So there's partly a generational thing here in terms of how comfortable younger women are with exposing their bodies in particular ways, but money is a huge motivator there as well, and being an athlete is very, uh, very costly. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Dana, thanks a lot for your presentation. It created a lot of thought in my head, and uh, one of them is around, are teachers... Uh, do they take mandatory training to to coach kids in school? Uh, first of all, that's one question, because that's an important place to start if you want to get kids active. And if they're active in, when they're kids, they tend to become active for life. The other one addresses uh, coaching, gender inequality in coaching, which I think also has a big bearing on on how active or how long kids stay, especially girls, stay active in their sports. Thank you for those questions. Um, two complete SACPA presentations in those two questions. The one about teaching, um, yes, I, I would hope that the, that the universities and colleges that are doing teacher training around physical education are doing a good job. I think the problem is is that you use the word coaching. And I think part of the problem is is that teachers are being trained to coach rather than to teach. No other subject in the schools in Alberta, or I should say every other subject in the schools in, the, in Alberta, has levels. If you look at math, if you're really, really good at math, you take a particular level of math. If you're not so good at math, you take a, a different stream. Physical education, you get kids of all different levels, of all different abilities in those classes. So the kids who are good don't necessarily get any better, or the teachers focus on the kids who are good, and so the kids who aren't so good don't learn anything. We really need to take a different look at how we conduct our physical education classes in the schools. If we want kids to be physically active, it can't be about who's the best kid. It can't be about who's the best athlete. It has to be about... Nutrition. It has to be about developing motor skills across the board. It has to be all about having fun. If you get good, great. It's like anything else you do in school. If we've got a lot of kids who get left behind because they can't read, right, we need to pay attention to that too. But we pay less attention to the kids who don't develop anything in physical education. And what do we do with kids who have particular physical or cognitive disabilities in the schools around physical education? What do we do with them? We do nothing in a lot of situations. That we can't accommodate the one kid in a wheelchair or the couple of kids with cerebral palsy. So what kind of training do they get in physical activity? Almost none. And so that's, that's a big problem. With respect to coaching, as we were talking about at our table, this is generational. When I was growing up as an athlete and all the way through university, I never had anything but women coaches, women officials, women athletic directors. When the laws changed in Canada and in the United States around sex equity in the schools and so forth, most of the athletic directors used to be women, became men. The women didn't become men. The athletic directors were all men. 
And there was this notion that men could coach better than women. So particularly in high schools and universities, prior to the middle of the 1970s, anybody who coached women was a woman. After the 1970s, men began to see more opportunities as entry into coaching the men's teams if they coached the women's teams. And the male athletic directors said, well, yeah, men can be better coaches than women. And so lots of women lost their jobs. Lots of men were hired into those positions. And it's important that coaching, officiating, administrative positions in sports, volunteer positions on boards, that we force groups like Sport Canada to ensure gender equity not just with respect to athletes and finances, but coaching uh, people, officiating uh, board members and administrators, that until we get women into these positions, people won't see that women can do those jobs, and there's no reason that they, that they can't. And so we need to, we need to balance things out um, at the other areas of sport as well as we have now with athletes. Hi, Dana. Ian McKenna. Um, I've noticed that, uh, you know, with the tennis, uh, golf, uh, soccer, rugby, there's always a division. There's the females and the males. And I guess my question is, is this a good thing? Uh, well, first, what question would be, why? Why do we have that? Why do we have it that a, a talented woman really can't get into a soccer game, although there was one that became a referee uh, um, in soccer last week? Um, but... Uh, is that a problem? You know, and if so, you know, how might we get out of that, this, this division that we, we do create there with regard to the, the actual players? I think the division began part of what, what I talked about earlier with respect to gender. Men and women are just different, and they shouldn't do the same things. But a lot of it had to do with the fact that women didn't get the same kind of coaching and training that men got. And so, yes, women and men perform differently. If we look at, at the top level, and I don't always like to look at the top level, the world records that women are holding now in track and field, in swimming, the distance of drivers that you know women um, golfers can hit, the speed of serves that women tennis players can have, would have buried all the male athletes as recently as 10 or 15 years ago, all right? What's happening is that women are getting proper coaching. Women are getting proper training. Now, what we have at the lower levels is that girls and boys are being trained differently. And if we had mixed groups at entry level across the board, then what would happen is the best athletes would rise to the top, and we'd pick the cream off, and those would be our high school teams or our college teams or whatever. And some of those people would be female. The problem is, is that if we then have a junior varsity type team or a second level team that's mostly made up of girls and a couple of boys get on that, I wouldn't want to be that boy, get slammed up against the lockers and teased about having to be on the girls team. So we still have this notion of boys being better than girls. Um, but when we look at the top athletes in the world, most of those women are going to be better than 99% of the rest of the men on the planet when it comes to physical ability, right? So we really need to look at our kids getting the right training physically, but are they also getting the right training uh, emotionally and socially that we should be celebrating excellence regardless of the body that it's in? And it's no different from talking about race. In Canada, um, I have a, we have a visitor at my table who's uh, from Quebec, 
One of the biggest problems that we have with equality in sport at the highest levels in Canada is not about race, it's not about sex, it's about language. That if the national coach in a particular program is Anglophone, you're not going to find any Quebecois or a lot of New Brunswick athletes on that national team. And if that team coach is Francophone, then most of those athletes are going to be coming from Quebec or New Brunswick because there's no money to pay for interpreters. And so when you look at the results, particularly in the Winter Olympics, why are all of the Canadian biathletes Francophone? Because that's who the coaches are. And so there are other things that divide sport uh, besides gender, and we need to look at, at all of those because they interfere with the ability of everybody to be physically active and to enjoy their sports. Yes, sir. Uh, Dana, thank you very much for your presentation. Terry Shellington. Um, I, to change the, uh, the conversation a little bit, um, uh, there's been something I've been wondering about the last few years that I'd uh, invite your comment on, but I wonder if we aren't um, nurturing a whole generation of younger women who are uh, more exhibitionist and enjoying exhibitionism. You know, when I go to the beach in the summer and I reflect on the kind of bathing suits that young men wear and the ones that young women wear, and when I reflect on what uh, young women wear at the hockey game or in the mall, it strikes me that we're beyond the pressure of money and sponsors and so on. It strikes me we're nurturing a generation or two of exhibitionists among women that, um, that is another issue as well as uh, what you're mentioning. I wonder. Well, I, th I think the, the, the we there needs to be cl uh, clarified quite a bit. Um, let me just take that into sport because there are some really good examples in sport. Um, coming up pretty soon, I think, is going to be an image of a beach volleyball player. Okay? Um, I may even be able to read the, the dimensions. Out of my book, if anybody would um, uh, like to know a little bit more about it, in volleyball, both beach volleyball and... There we go, page 148. And um, uh, team volleyball indoors... The International Volleyball Federation has very strict um, guidelines about what the uniforms must be. And I'm going to quote now from the Federación Internacional de Volleyball um, rulebook about women's uniforms. The top must fit closely to the body, and the design must be with deep cutaway armholes on the back, upper chest, and stomach, and a, in a, so two-piece. The briefs should be close-fit and cut on an upward angle toward the top of the leg. In other words, you know, all the women are going down reaching for their underwear now trying to pull it out. Um, the side width, in other words, from the waist to the bottom, must be a maximum of seven centimeters. Okay? The one-piece uniform must closely fit and the design must be open back and upper chest. Teams... Countries who send their athletes to the Olympics or the World Championships who do not follow these rules are fined. And they're fined to the point that the punishment is so great that those teams couldn't even go to the games because these are often poor countries. Why do we do that? Because we get more viewers on television. If a woman's body, if you, if you think about the Olympic coverage that we get, both in the summer games and the winter games, what sports do we see most often? Swimming, diving, gymnastics in the summer games, 
okay? In the Winter Games, we see a lot of figure skating, obviously. Um, now, in Canada, we're pretty good downhill skiing types, so we see a little bit more of that. But you can't see those bodies. I mean, if you look at the aerial skier bodies and the speed skater bodies that I've got up here, you can't tell if those are men or women. Well, that's no good. How do we know if we want to watch them if they're, if they're, if they're only really women, right? So I, I, I think that there's a problem with the way that we're asking young women to display their bodies. Some of it is regulated. Some of it comes out of this notion of how do I demonstrate that I'm really feminine? And to be really feminine, I have to show cleavage, I have to wear tight-fitting clothes to be sexually attractive. It's a problem. But then again, go to the mall and try to find any variety at all in what's available for these young women to buy. There might be a dozen stores that they can walk into that all have exactly the same thing. So if you want something different, you either buy boys' clothes or make your own. It's a bit of, it is a bit of a problem. And... Uh, I don't know where the whole notion of board shorts came from. I think to some extent it did come out of the uh, skateboard culture and then the snowboarding culture where the ski culture was always very fancy uh, clothes, you know, matching uh, ski jackets and um, leggings and stuff. And when the snowboarders came out, they were reactionary. They were rebels, and their clothing was quite rebellious as well. Great big baggy pants and very long jackets, and that translated. Now, look at the difference in men's basketball uniforms from the mid-'80s and '90s. Very, very tiny shorts, uh, tight tops. They're now all these great big things that you don't even know how they, how they keep them up. So, uh, and again, it's to separate what a man should look like from what a woman should look, look like. And I can't see any other reason for it, for it than that. That could be my opinion, but uh, I'm sticking with it. I think we'll take uh, just one more. We have about five minutes left here. Thank you, Dana. Uh, my question has to do with homosexuality. How much do the athletes, male and female, have to pay for their homosexuality? I could be quite wrong, but uh, I observe that there are more men coming out than women. Uh, is it because women have to pay more by coming out than men? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Um, uh, and something that, and here it comes up, most women are considered, most women athletes are considered to be lesbians. Uh, looking at these pictures, that might not be a question that would have come into anybody's mind. Look at all those gorgeous women. They must all be straight. I can tell you for a fact that some of them are not. And now when they come back all up again, you go, oh, which ones are lesbians? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Um, the price, the price is, can't be compared. Okay, because this assumption that women are engaged in a masculine endeavor, sport, that lots and lots of women athletes over the last century and a quarter have been seen as being masculinized women, therefore most likely lesbians, particularly if they do sports that are traditionally male sports. So gymnasts and synchronized swimmers are never accused of being lesbians, but soccer players, rugby players, um, and other athletes are because these are seen to be okay girl sports and not okay girl sports. 
So there is that challenge that young women face all the time. I think that, again, it's a generational thing that young women today get called lesbian. It's like, so what? You know, I'm not going to date you anyway, so leave me alone, right? Um, it has nothing to do with my ability to participate in sport. With men, particularly in the professional sports, it's a huge price because if they're giving up millions and millions of dollars, which potentially could happen to them if they come out, they're not going to come out. To this date today, not one professional team sport male athlete has come out of the closet while he has still been playing. The male athletes who have come out, who have been football players, basketball players, baseball players, or hockey players, not one of them has come out of the closet until after he retired. And that's also true with a number of um, with other athletes. Um, uh, every time another athlete comes out, we hear unbelievable homophobic statements coming from their teammates. You know, always oh, checking out my junk in the locker room. And from what I understand, little boys have been checking each other out in locker rooms, you know, since grade six or seven when they first go into locker rooms in large numbers. So I don't understand what that's all about. But um, this great fear of homosexuality, uh, particularly in team sports, we are seeing more, more and more younger men, uh, university-aged athletes, um, even high school athletes, coming out because you talk to any of the kids in high school today and said, you know anybody that's gay and lesbian? Oh, yeah. You know, and it's not a big deal to them. I think there's a generational difference. Um, uh, and I think it's changing. And I think that homophobia is less an issue than homonegativity. In other words, we're not really afraid of the gay people anymore. We just don't want other people to know that we have gays on our teams because maybe they won't come to the games or maybe they won't buy tickets or, you know, wear a jersey or you know, from our sport. Um, but it continues to be um, a problem. It's a very different problem for women than for, uh, than for men. And there's another area where race comes in as well. The majority of uh, athletes who have come out of the closet have a tendency to be white because of the relationship of the issues of homosexuality within various ethnic and racial communities. It gets very complex. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming, and thanks again to Dana Daniels. Thank you. Thank you.